Everybody doing okay? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, guys. You guys like this weather in the morning? Yeah. I hate it. Absolutely hate it. Uh, I walked out this morning. It was like 55, and I'm like, what the heck? Um, you're kind of cold, and I drove my old car the other day and had to roll up the windows, and I had to wear a sweatshirt, and I just, my wife loves it. She, like, wakes up in the morning, like, singing and stuff, and I'm like, this sucks, man. It's dark outside and cold. I don't like that. You don't know where to set your thermostat in your house, you know? You set it at one thing, and then you wake up, and you're like, how did we get to this temperature overnight? Um, anyways, okay, sorry, that was a rambling. I'm learning the longer we do this church, the more I just kind of talk. It doesn't, it doesn't go to good places, so I just need to stick to the Bible, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that, but... Um, Kyle did tell me to remind you guys, worship night, Friday. We've been talking to you guys about that. I told him I'd be there, but I'll probably be at the soda bar the whole time at the fountains, and I don't know if I'll actually go. I'm just gonna down root beers the whole time um, while you guys are worshiping, so. Now, you guys are awake out there, right? I mean, come on, seriously, right? <laughs> worship nights and soda fountains. It doesn't get any better than that. That's, that's like, that's what heaven's gonna be like. That's somewhere in here, I, I think, so, um, okay. So we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew, we've been working through it for quite a while now, and it's been a couple of weeks. I had Isaac come up here and speak, spoke about discipleship, which I asked him to do that, and um, I just thought it was a really good time for him to kind of interject and talk about our discipleship process. We did our vision service, so it's been, I guess, about three weeks since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew, where we ended a couple of weeks ago, in case maybe you forgot or, or maybe you just weren't here. We were in the first half of chapter 20. And there is this phrase that is repeated, not always exactly the same, but the theme is repeated throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew. And it's this. He says it very blatantly in chapter 20 in the beginning. Jesus tells his disciples that the last will be first and the first will be last, which is the exact opposite of what the world tells you, right? The world tells you be first, right? Be the most popular, the wealthiest, you know, stab whoever you have to have in the back to climb the corporate ladder. Be first, right? It's all about you. It's about the individual, and Jesus takes his disciples in chapter 20 and he says, you're looking at it all wrong. The world says, do it this way. And Jesus says, no, 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 reverse that, right? Be last and then you'll be the first in the kingdom of heaven, right? Which is a better kingdom than any kingdom of earth. So he says, take your way of viewing the world and shift it, right? Look at, look at people the way I look at people, Jesus says, right? So look at people the way God wants you to look at them. Look at yourself, the way God looks at you and values you. Look at economies and governments and everything. Change your worldview. And of course, we talked about in here, right, that the worldview that we should have as followers of God, if you claim to be a follower of God, is we see everything through the filter of this book, right? Through the Bible, through the teachings of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, that's how we view everything, or at least it's how we should view everything. This week, we're going to finish up chapter 20 and and. And it's interesting because at the end of this chapter, we're going to meet a couple of guys, right? These blind beggars. We know one of their names, which isn't really his name, but it's, it's kind of a derogatory term that they called him. But um, these guys are healed and they follow Jesus. They become Christians. So what we're going to talk about today is in the United States, and, and, and this always upsets people, and I'm not, I'm not trying to upset them. I love where I live. I don't want to live anywhere else. When I retire, we're going to go somewhere on the equator. I don't know where, but what country, but I'm going to go where it's hot as it can be, and that's where we're going to end up. So anyways, uh, but, but I love where I live. I love where I am. I don't, I don't believe there's any better place to live on planet Earth than in the United States, but we often say something in the United States that we're a Christian nation, and I challenge that. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's true. So if, if 68% of the United States claims to be Christian, but we don't 
we don't demonstrate Christian morals or values if our entertainment and our industries don't reflect the teachings of Jesus, what's wrong? Something is wrong. And so I'm going to propose to you today that we don't really know what a Christian is. That, that maybe our definition of Christian has been so skewed that so many of us go, I'm a Christian, and, and, and we don't understand what we're saying when we do that, okay? So that's what we're going to talk about at the end of this. Don't, don't leave yet or walk out on me. We'll, it'll, it'll connect at the end. But we're going to talk about what it means to be born again, okay? This idea of being a follower of Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to end today. So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in any of the entrances, and um, it has everything I'm going to say in there. Everything should be on the screens. Uh, if you have the Experience Community app, everything should be on there. It's a really, really handy app. Hope you get that. Really, really handy. Everything will be on that as well. If you're watching online or at home right in this area, I don't know how accurate that is, but in this area, the notes will pop up, right? So if you're watching that at home, somewhere right here, uh, all the notes will pop up. So it's real easy, right? So everything and should be clear, and, and we should be ready to rock and roll. So let me pray. We'll jump into this today, and um, I'm going to show you some, some statistics at the end that maybe you'll find a little eye-opening, okay? All right? Father, Lord, we love you. God, I love this church so much, Lord. This is my family, Lord. These are my friends. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. God, I pray, Lord, that you bless them today, Lord. Keep your hand on all of us. Keep your hand on our church, Lord. I, I pray, Father, that everything we read and study today, that it sharpens our minds, sharpens our hearts and our souls, brings us closer to you, glorifies you, God. We pray not just for, for our church. We pray for all the churches in our city. I want to I specifically pray for, for my friend Brady Cooper over at New Vision because we're partnering with them this week, God. My friend James McCarroll over at First Baptist uh, because we're partnering with them this week, God, in that worship night. And I pray that you bless those men and their churches, God, and what they're doing. But Lord, we pray for every church in our city that they're blessed, God, and that the kingdom grows through them. Keep your hand on us, Lord. We love you, God, and we thank you, and uh, we do all this, Lord, for you this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, starting in verse 17 of chapter 20, if you have a Bible, I'm in the first book of the New Testament. I use the CSB. If you use a different translation, it's okay, right? Everyone always asks, what's your favorite? I always say the one that you will pick up and read, so um, that's a good one. All right, okay, so here we go. While going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside privately and said to them on the way, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day he will be Raised. Now, for you nerds in the room like me, when it says that they were going up to Jerusalem, they were actually traveling south. But the reason why it says twice that they are going up is Jerusalem was literally on a 2,500 foot ridge. So they are going vertically up, even though they are traveling south, okay? Is it relevant to the story? It doesn't really matter, but I just wanted to tell you about it. So the other thing that's kind of interesting here is the first 19 chapters of the book of Matthew focus on about a three and a half year span of time. So a pretty good chunk of time, right? The last eight chapters of Matthew is seven days, which is kind of interesting. So Matthew hyper focuses in on this last week of Jesus's life. There is a lot of lessons that we need to learn from this last week of Jesus's life, but that's where we're entering into, okay? So right after Jesus tells his disciples that the first will be last and the last will be first, 
which we're actually gonna come across that teaching again here in a minute. But right after he, he teaches this lesson, he is going to predict his death again. Now, the reason why he predicts his death right after teaching that the first will be last is Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the creator of the universe, right? The most powerful thing that has ever existed. He's God. He humbles himself to not only become a human, but to die at the hands of his own creation. So not only does Jesus say, you need to humble yourself and be a servant, Jesus models it in the most extreme way. The God of the universe humbles himself to become a man, be crucified and killed for people who didn't even, some people who didn't even care. So in his lastness, Jesus will become the triumphant savior of mankind. Look at how he does that. Jesus will never ask us to do anything that he hasn't already modeled and done first. And that's pretty amazing, okay? So the foretelling of his death, his burial and resurrection also show that Jesus is sovereign, which means he knows all. Right? He sees all, knows all, has always known all. So not only does Jesus know that he's going to be arrested, flogged, mocked, and killed by the Romans right, and by the Jews, but he willingly walks right into it. And he's been willingly walking into it at this point for three years now. So it shows us that Jesus is not only the all-knowing king, but he has a plan, he has a mission. He's not caught off guard. He's not surprised by anything that's going to take place. And he willingly walks through this very painful process in order to save you and I, in order to save anyone that would accept him, right? Anyone that would follow his lead. That's what he was going to do. He was the sovereign, all-knowing God, okay? So let's move forward. They're walking towards Jerusalem, okay? Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask Jesus for something. What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We are able, they said to him. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup. But to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared for by my Father. When the other ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act like tyrants over them. It must not be that way among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great must be your servant. Here's this teaching, right? Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, so Matthew includes this story. And this sound, my mom's watching right now, so this sounds like something my mom would have done, right? Walked up to Jesus and been like, hey, my son's gonna have a good seat, right? This is totally something she would have done. But the reason why Matthew includes this story, there's a couple. The first one is this. Matthew wants to connect the fact that not only Jesus suffered, but all people who follow Jesus will suffer. Now, there's this narrative in American Christianity. It really doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. It's kind of, kind of siloed to the United States that Christianity is all about prosperity. It's all about health and wealth and happiness and good times, and everything's okay when you become a Christian, right? And that does not 
gets supported by this book. That's, that's either from another Bible that I haven't read yet, and it's, it's grossly uh, uh, wrong, right? Or people just tell you that stuff to get your money and to get that attention. It's, it's not what Jesus teaches. We will suffer on some level. And quite frankly, guys, we should find it a joy, the Bible says, to suffer for the things of Christ. Secondly, the reason why Matthew tells this story is that the disciples still have not learned <laughs> the lesson on humility. And, and, and now there's actually something kind of liberating and free about that. The disciples have been walking with Jesus for three and a half years, not the way we walk with Jesus, like they literally walked with him. Like they could reach over and like touch Jesus. They could look in his eyes. They, they ate dinner with Jesus. They hung out with Jesus, right? They probably laughed and told funny stories with Jesus. And that'd be interesting, isn't it? Telling stories to a guy that already knew all of them. But anyways, so, and they still had not adopted all of his lessons yet. Now, the good thing about us reading that is that sometimes we're hard on ourselves. Man, I haven't figured it out yet. It takes time. And we need to have some grace. But here's the point. Though it takes time and though it, it, some of us it takes longer than others, all of us in this room should be gravitating towards humility, even though we might slip up every once in a while and be arrogant and prideful. We're gravitating towards humility. We're gravitating towards being more sacrificial. And we're gravitating towards being a servant to God and a servant to other people. We should be working towards those things as followers of Jesus. Okay? And so... James and John's mom takes the two of these grown men and they walk up to Jesus, all three of them, right? And, and James and John's mom says, hey, I want to assure, I, I want to be assured that my kids not only are going to be in heaven with you, right, and have a throne, but I want their thrones to be parked right next to your throne. And so it's interesting. The boys probably put their mom up to this. They probably told their mom that Jesus in chapter 19 said that they were going to inherit a throne. And it's fascinating to me because we see how entitled these two young men were acting, right? They were adults, but they were still relatively young. And we see how entitled they are. It's like a lot of us. Have you ever gotten someone a gift and like you get them something nice and they look at it and they're like, thank you, but I wish it was red. That's kind of what's happening right here, right? If you have kids, you, you have this story, Right? And so Jesus already promised these guys they're going to have a special position in heaven, but it had to be extra special. It had to be exactly right next to, to Jesus. And that, again, shows us that even when we're at our best, even when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, it is so easy for us to slide into entitlement, right, and not appreciate what we've been blessed with and given. And we can easily become selfish people. So we got to stay connected to Christ. We've got to be thinking the, the best we can like Jesus, and so they, they come up to Jesus, right? All three of them, the mom and the two sons. And they ask to sit right next to Jesus in heaven. And Jesus says, are you willing to go through the suffering that it's going to take to be near me for eternity, right? Because with great authority and great position comes sacrifice. Now, listen, that's not just for leaders. That's not just for uh, I don't know, principals of schools and CEOs of businesses and pastors or something. That's for all of us. All of you in some way or another will have influence other people over other people. If you're a parent in this room, you have to lead your children. If you're a husband in this room, you're called to lead your family and your, and your, and your spouse. If you're a, a business owner, whatever your lot in life is in this room. 
Without being close to Christ and without the Holy Spirit, we don't wield authority well. So if we're going to be righteous leaders, it takes suffering and it takes sacrifice. If you're going to be a good parent, it takes sacrifice. Ask any mom in this room, right? It takes suffering. It takes sacrifice. If you're going to be a good husband, it takes suffering. It takes sacrifice. And what we tend to do, though, is we look, and in the world's economy, there are a lot of people who are in positions of authority who have not earned it, right? They became CEO because their dad started the company, or they got elected to this position because they were attractive and just had a you know, good campaign. They haven't done anything, and so I'm not talking about anyone in particular there. You can start to... Anyways, um, and so there are different people, right, to where we look at them and we go, well, but there are people in the world that have authority that have not sacrificed or suffered for that. That's in the worldly system. In the spiritual system, God is the only one who gives authority to people, and he sees all, knows all, and it takes suffering and sacrifice to have true spiritual authority. That's the way it works in God's economy, and he's trying to communicate that to these two brothers. You know what's fascinating? I don't know if you thought it when I read it, but Jesus says, are you willing to go through what I'm going through? And they go, yes, we are. And here's what's crazy. They meant it. We know they meant it because we see later on in the Bible that they do go through it. James in Acts chapter 12 was killed by the sword because of his faith. He was stabbed to death, right? Later on in, in, in the New Testament, we see that John dies of natural causes, but he is boiled alive and exiled to the island of Patmos. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation. Fun fact, John is the only disciple that died of natural causes, and he was the only disciple present at the crucifixion of Christ. Interesting thing there, isn't it? But all of these guys suffered for their faith. So when they said, yeah, we'll suffer, they meant it. They suffered. Now, here's what's interesting. The other 10 disciples are sitting here on the side, right? And they see all this. And it says that they become, they become indignant. I like that word. That's not angry or a little upset. That's like, I loathe those guys right there, right? I loathe their mom. I don't like them. They are indignant to these guys. So here's what's even more interesting. <laughs> the reason why the other 10 were indignant isn't because they were upset at what they did. They were upset that they didn't do it first. They were like, crap, I should have got my mom involved, right? I would have a seat right next to Jesus for eternity. They were indignant because they just got beat, because they should have jockeyed for position before the other two. So Jesus knows the state of everyone's heart. <laughs> so Jesus says, hey, John, James, mom, can you, can you go over there for a second? Gathers the 12 together and he says, this is not how we're going to do it, okay? And so Jesus wants to address the bad motives and the bad attitude in all of them. Guys, look at how the disciples are just us, right? Sometimes we get mad at people when they do something wrong, and it's not because we just love justice so much. We're just upset that they got something and we didn't, right? We do this. So Jesus pulls them all aside and he said, all your hearts are in the wrong place, right? Your attitudes are in the wrong place. We need to talk. And he says, listen, guys, you guys are acting like people that haven't been hanging around Jesus. <laughs> you guys are acting like the world. He says, the world acts like this. When they get power, when they get authority, when they get money, when they get uh, political influence, whatever the case is, they lord it over people, right? They use their power and their influence and their affluence as a way to, to push people down. And Jesus says, that's not the way you're to operate. And listen, Jesus was not against authority, Jesus is not against influence. Jesus isn't even against wealth or affluence. He's not against any of those things. 
But what Jesus was saying is, is when we get authority, when we get power, when we get influence or affluence, that should humble the Christian, not make them arrogant. So listen, if you become the CEO of your corporation and you're a believer in Jesus, you don't walk around the hall strutting your stuff, right? Looking down at people. It should humble you. It should make you more humble. Jesus was criticizing what happens when people get authority and they're not tethered to him. That's when we become prideful, right? That's when we become insecure. That's when we start treating people like they're less than us. And that's, Jesus says, that's not the way we're gonna act, right? We're not gonna handle authority like the world handles authority. And Jesus says true power, true authority is given to the servants, the ones who are humble. You guys ever researched Sam Walton? Um, he was the guy that started a, a little business called Walmart, right? Uh, one day, all of Murfreesboro will just be a Walmart. So um, you go, go in any direction, there's a Walmart in, in Murfreesboro. So Sam Walton was a fascinating character. If you research Sam Walton, um, during his time, uh, uh, there was all these other corporations that were bigger than him. But because he was so humble, he just continued to grow up the ladder. And there are stories of, of Sam Walton picking up these CEOs and people from overseas, from Switzerland and France and stuff like that, who wanted to check out what Walmart was doing in the United States. And there are stories of Sam Walton pulling up to the airport in his old beat-up F-150 and overalls and Old Roy, that was his dog, that's why you buy Old Roy dog food at Walmart, sitting in the seat. And these guys in like these like $3,000 suits would have to like cram into the cab of his old truck, right? This guy's worth billions, but the stories of just how humble Sam Walton was. And that's, that's kind of what Christ expects out of us, right? So not only is spiritual authority given to humble servants of God, but if we're a Christian, we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. That means that when we've been adopted into a noble family, listen, we're to act with nobility. We're to act in a way that is noble. So something that drives me crazy about a lot of Christians, we use this phrase all the time, and it's not a bad phrase, but I think we use it incorrectly. We say, hey, this is a place where you come as you are. And this is, this is a church where you can come in from any background, all the mistakes you've made as messy and, and screwed up as you are. You can come into this place and you're gonna be treated right. But here's the, here's the fallacy in that. It's when you come into this place and we don't think that you should leave any differently. The reason why we need a savior, the reason why God is so good is God lets us come however broken we are, but if we have a connection with him, we don't leave that way. We leave changed and different. Jesus calls us to live up to a higher standard, that he pulls us up out of the mud, right? He doesn't want us to hang out there. Then we're to live in a way that honors the fact that we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Here's the thing, guys. All of us in this room have been bought for a price, which means God gave his only son for our redemption. That means, young lady, we walk in a way that is noble, right, and honors the king. Young men, we treat others and we treat ourselves in a way that is honorable, honors the king of kings. We are co-heirs to the kingdom of God, right? We're to be holy as God is holy, the Bible, is, the Bible says. So we need to understand not only his identity, we need to understand our identity in him. You're the son of a king. You're the daughter of a king. The Bible says you're a peculiar people, a royal priesthood. And here's the thing about that. When we start to understand that we've been adopted by the king of kings, we start to treat other people differently because we understand that they are made in the same image of the God that we serve. They're made in the same image. 
So when we start understanding that our value does not come from our social media accounts or how hot we are or how much money we have or whatever the case may be, but that our value comes from the fact that we are made in the image of God, we start to treat people a little bit differently because they're also made in the image of God. We start to treat our spouse differently, right? We start to raise our children differently. We start to walk in a way that honors the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because we understand, right? That that's where our identity comes from. It's where our value comes from. That's what Jesus was trying to do with these guys. You're not like those people. Not that you look down on other ones, but you guys know better. You've been told the truth. You've been given real authority, real power, right? You've walked with me. You don't walk with Jesus and stay the same. And Jesus was the perfect example of this. Look at what he says. Jesus didn't just tell his followers to be humble servants to others. He modeled it. Another thing that I'm sick of hearing Christians say is, well, I have the right. I have the right. Jesus had some rights too, and he gave them up. Jesus took on some obligations that were not his to take on. You know, Jesus didn't mess up humanity. Jesus didn't screw up the earth, but he's the one that's going to restore it all. Does he have to do it? No, he doesn't have to do it. But Jesus gave up his right as the heir of the kingdom of heaven to come down to earth to not only live as a human, but to be treated awful by his own creation. He gave up his rights, took on a responsibility that was not his. And Jesus came and died for a people that didn't deserve it and for a lot of people that will never even accept it or believe it. So whenever I hear Christians say, well, I have the right, I say, listen, just because you're permitted to do something doesn't mean it's beneficial for you to do it. We are called to be servants and to sometimes lay down our comforts and rights for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of those around us. That's what our Father in heaven did, okay? That's what we're to do as well, okay? Last part. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. There were two blind men sitting by the road. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd demanded that they keep quiet, but they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus stopped and he called out to them. and He said, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said to him, Open our eyes. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they could see, and then they followed him. We're gonna hang out on that last line for a while here in a second. Okay, so they're getting closer to the capital, which was Jerusalem. If you've been hanging out with me for the last couple of months, Jesus has been in rural areas, kind of up north, right? So he's in north Israel, not a ton of people. There might be some crowds, but, but not these huge, overwhelming crowds. So as they're getting closer to to the the city, right, the capital, they're kind of in the suburbs, if you will. They're in the suburbs and the the crowds are starting to get bigger. Not only because it's a more populated area, but because Jesus was more famous than he had ever been at this point. Everyone knew who Jesus was. And they're starting to crowd around. So as he is working his way through the suburbs, right, about 16 miles away from the city, he's working his way through the suburbs on his way to the city, There's two blind men on the side of the road and they start yelling because they know Jesus is coming. And they say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, if you get into the other gospels, Mark and Luke, so you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark and Luke also mention this exact same story, but they only say there is one beggar, right? Skeptics of the Bible read that and they're like, there's a discrepancy, so there is no God. That's not the case. Uh, There is a God. In the Bible, there is no discrepancy. 
Mark and Luke focus on the only one of the guys who is speaking. He's speaking for the two of them. The Bible calls him Bartimaeus, which is not his name given to him by birth, unless you have the worst parents ever, because Bartimaeus means son of excrement. Yeah, right? So anyways, there's some laughing back here in the corner. We have some good humor back somewhere in this section. Thank you. So anyways, Jewish law... Jewish law would have said that, that men like this, even though they were the, the biggest outcasts of society, similar to kind of like, our, our, like a welfare system, they would get a certain amount of food, they would be taken care of, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't die of starvation, right? There was a little bit set aside from the government and from the people to, to help these kinds of people, right? That didn't have anywhere to go, who had some kind of a physical ailment, whatever the case may be. But the religious leaders would have never interacted with these men. Uh, they could possibly have some kind of a disease they, they, they couldn't see, so there was something wrong with them physically, and there was all kinds of ideas about why that happened and all these things. So the religious leaders would not have even touched these guys. They wouldn't have talked to them. They wouldn't have even looked at them. Fortunately for us, Jesus was nothing like the religious leaders. Jesus came for the outcast, right? He came for the lowest of the low. Now, we need to be careful with that because sometimes we think that God loves poor, desolate people more than he loves lost, rich people. And God loves all people, right? God, God does not, is no respecter of people. It's not like that. But there is a special soft spot in Jesus's heart for the ones that have no advocate. So Jesus comes in and he is the advocate for these two men. And the key to these two men being saved is they had to understand, this is so important, they had to understand the identity of Jesus, and they did. <laughs> this is fascinating. These two poor blind men could see God more clearly than all of the religious leaders. And as Jesus was passing through, even though they couldn't see him with his eyes, they knew who it was. They said, Lord, which means boss, right? You're the boss. And then they called him son of David, which means you're the savior. So they were crying out, hey, boss, save us. They understood that they were depraved. They understood they were lost. They understood they were broken and needy. And they also understood the only one that could fix them was that guy right there. It was Jesus, right? So they cried out to him. Even when everyone else said, shut up, they're like, nope, gonna cry out to him. So Jesus stops. I love this. Of course, Jesus knew what they wanted, right? He knew, but he looks at me and says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, here's another thing that I'm annoyed by when Christians say this. Whenever I hear Christians say, well, God knows what I need. He does. He knows exactly what you need, but he also wants you to say it. Why? Because you were created because God wants to talk to you. That's why you exist, to have a relationship with the creator, right? And so like, if, 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 if you say like, well, you know, my, my wife knows that I love her. She may, she also wants to hear you say it because you're in a relationship with them. God knows everything I struggle with, everything I need. He knows everything on my mind, but God wants to talk to me. So he wants me to verbalize my needs. He wants me to verbalize my concerns. He wants me to verbalize my love for him because we're in a relationship. And Jesus is not Santa Claus. We confuse the two a lot, right? We think that Jesus is just this guy. We tell him a couple of times a year all we want, and then we just go do whatever the heck we want, and then he drops all of our blessings on us. That's not the case. It's a relationship. We talk. We communicate. We put forth effort. In practical speaking, it means we read the Bible and we pray. We set aside time to be with him. That's what he wants. 
What do you want? He knows what you want, but he wants to hear you say it. He wants to talk to you about those things. And I love it. Open our eyes. We need you to open our eyes. Look at the metaphor there, right? Need you to open our eyes. And because these blind beggars, they acknowledged who Jesus was, they told him directly what they needed and what they wanted. Jesus was moved with compassion, goes over, touches the eyes, immediately they could see. Metaphorically speaking, Jesus wants to do this with all of us, right? He wants to meet the need in our life. He wants to build a relationship with us. He wants to talk with us. He wants to restore us and heal us and save us, the whole nine yards. But we have to be willing to cry out to him and trust that however he lays his hands on us, however he touches our lives, whatever he chooses to do with us, it's for our benefit, right? It's for what's best for us. We have to trust that. We have to call out to that. And then here's maybe the most understated part of this entire lesson. You read all this, and then the very last half sentence says, and they followed him. Now, all of us in this room were like, well, no, duh, they followed him. They were blind, poor guys that had miraculously got healed on the street in front of a crowd. They were touched by the hand of God. Of course they followed him. How many of us in this room know people who have been blatantly touched by the hand of God, and maybe they're cool for a minute, and they go right back to the sinful, evil lifestyle that they lived before? You guys ever met anyone like that? I've met hundreds over the years. I've seen people miraculously physically healed. Years ago, there was a guy that was in a coma. We went and prayed for him at the hospital, laid hands on him. An hour or two later, snapped right out of the coma. Came to church for about a month and got right back into that old lifestyle, right? And, and moved away. And to this day, I don't believe he's a believer in Jesus. Seen that so many times. I've seen couples come into this church. Their marriage is on the rocks. They're about to get divorced. Their kids are running wild and everything's crazy and terrible. They're broke as a joke, all this stuff. They'll come in here. God restores their marriage, blesses their family, blesses them financially, the whole nine yards. They get comfortable and then they go right back, right? So we look at this and we read this and we're like, how could you be touched by God and not follow? And we see it all the time. I'll be honest with you, man. So many of us, all of us have been blessed in some way or another, but here's the thing. We've made the mistake to think that Christianity is just about being blessed. Too blessed to be stressed because you don't work, right? So anyways, so we always, I shouldn't have said that. That was wrong. Anyways, always people are like, Corey, you shouldn't be stressed. I'm like, I have a real life. I mean, like, sorry. Um, Christianity is not just about getting blessed all the time. Christianity is even when it's tough, even when there's hard times, we are devoted to the teachings and principles of Jesus Christ, that we follow after him, that we believe in the mission of Jesus, that we submit to the King of Kings, right? That's what it means to follow. That's what being a Christian is. And we are blessed. Man, God is good. So much better than we give him credit for. But it's not just about that. It's about following him. It's about being devoted to him. It's about submission to him. But that brings up the question, what in the heck is a Christian? What constitutes a Christian? I'm going to show you some facts. I didn't just pull these out of thin air. I'll show you exactly where I got them. In the United States right now, Christianity is, is plummeting. And I'll show you here in a second. I mean just plummeting. It is just dropping at alarming rates. But right now, right now in 2020, if you were to line up every adult in America, right, and you were to ask them, what is your religious affiliation? 68% of them would say, I'm a Christian right now, which again is, is just 
<laughs> flabbergasts me because there, I, I see no Christian ethics, no Christian values pushed on Netflix or Hulu or, I own all these, by the way, I have all these, but like, I don't thumb through Netflix and I'm like, man, this is overtly Christian. You know, like, I don't do that with Hulu, I don't do that with Disney Plus, I don't do that with Prime or any of those, right? I don't see it in our politics, I don't see it in how people run businesses, you just don't see 68% Christian values out in the world. So this is an interesting thing to me. But here's the thing, of that 68% of the United States that claims to be Christian, only 25% say that you have to actually follow the Bible to be a Christian. <laughs> only 25%. The other 43% of those Americans claim that you can be a Christian, go to heaven, and you don't even have to believe that the Bible is real. In other words, I can do whatever I want to do. As long as I'm not Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler, I'm going to go to heaven, right? Unless I've killed a bunch of people, I'm going to go to heaven. That's what they believe. And I didn't, again, I didn't just pull that out of thin air. This is from the Barner Research Group. Just came out. And the Barner Research Group is an, is an extremely um, well-respected think tank about stuff like this, okay? Now, I know you can't see all the numbers, but you can see the lines, on the left side of the screen, that's the year 2000, okay? Which was also a, kind of a fun year. So year 2000, over here. This top line is practicing Christians. So in the year 2000, 45% of the United States claim to be practicing Christians. This is where I have a problem when people say, we're a Christian nation. It's like saying you're an A student and you got a 45 on your test. Well, but I'm an A student. You just got an F. It's a 45, Right? 45 out of 100, but I'm an A student. We can say that all day long, but the numbers just don't justify it. In the year 2000, 45% of the United States said that they were practicing Christians. Now, if you follow this red line, something started happening about 2009, guys. Look, do, 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 dropping down. And in 2020, that is now to 25% of the United States are practicing Christians. 25%. In the last 20 years, it has dropped 20%. That's the first disturbing trend. The other disturbing trend is this blue line, the second one. In the year 2000, 35% of the United States claimed to be Christian, but they didn't think you had to do anything to be a Christian, which is odd to me. You don't have to pray. You don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to go to church. You don't even have to believe that Jesus was literally the Son of God. Follow this line, and look, something different starts happening. It goes up. Less people believe the word of God and actually following Jesus's commands are important. More people think we all just get to go to heaven regardless of what we do. That's what's happening right now in our Christian nation. And again, what that leads me to believe is we don't even have any idea what a born-again Christian really is, okay? So let's talk about it. What is a born-again Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? Well, we're gonna go way up, Okay because I don't have all day to, to talk about it. So we'll go over four major components. The first one is this. In order to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we must be looking for the truth. We must have our eyes open, looking for something bigger than us. That's the problem in the United States right now, is the God of the United States is self. And when we think we're the biggest thing, we're not looking for anything else. But in Romans chapter one, Paul says this, every person theoretically should be able to walk outside, right? Even when it's cold in the mornings and it shouldn't be, to walk outside, 
to look at the sky, to look at the trees, to look at the world around them and say, there has to be something bigger than me. In scientific terms, there must be an intelligent designer, right? There must be something beyond humanity, bigger, that created all this. That's the first step. But then if we're looking for whatever that bigger thing is, we have to look with an open mind and we have to seek with an open heart. What that means is this, when we start looking for the truth, you're eventually going to come to this book. When you pick up this book, you have to read it with an open heart and an open mind, not subjectively, meaning I'm gonna twist this to get to where I want to go, but to read it objectively saying, God, take me wherever this takes me. So my wife was a scientist. She was a chemist and a biologist. And a good scientist doesn't do an experiment subjectively. They're not trying to get here. They run through all the different protocols with the different elements and, and different things that they have. And wherever they end up, that's the product. That's the truth. So we have to go at this searching for whatever's bigger, saying whatever the truth is, regardless of how I feel, regardless of what I do, I'm going to accept whatever the truth is, okay? Regardless of how I feel, regardless of what I do. But what that does is that takes humility, and here's where we really drop the ball. We have to acknowledge that we don't know it all. We don't know it all. We're a generation that follows feelings, right? And the Bible addresses that. It says, don't follow your heart. Every single Disney movie sings that one song, right? Follow your heart, you're good. And the Bible says, don't follow your heart. It's the most deceptive part of you. When we just let our emotions steer us all the time, 2020, right? When we just let our emotions steer us all the time, we're going to go off a cliff. You're going to cheat on your wife. You're going to make stupid financial decisions. You're going to hurt somebody if you follow your heart. That's why the Bible says don't follow your heart. Follow the Holy Spirit that hopefully is in your heart. So in order to pursue truth, we have to be humble. We have to understand we don't know it all. Okay? Step one. Step two is, and I believe what the Bible says, that if we search for the truth, we will find the truth. And I believe the truth is this book in Jesus Christ. So once we come to a realization of who God is and how great God is, we should also come to a realization that we are depraved. We are broken. We are messed up. We need to come to the conclusion that our hearts are not good, that we're not perfect, that we don't have it all figured out, and that the ways of mankind have always ended up in destruction. Corey, why do you say that? Look at every civilization that has ever existed. They end up burning to the ground, all of them, because humanity absent of God destroys itself. That's what we do. And so we have to acknowledge that we are broken. We are depraved. We are lost. And we need to stop believing the lie that there is anything good in us apart from God. You, did you hear what that said? That's why it's in blue. The world right now, man, even Christian churches tell you, you're good. If you're good, why in the heck do we need church? If you're good, why do you need Jesus as a savior? We're not good. Apart from the Holy Spirit that is in us, we're, we're terrible. You take God out of us and we're awful. But the world tells you the exact opposite. It all goes back to Satan in Genesis chapter three. He strolls up next to Eve and he says, who says you can't be just like God? It's exactly what the world is telling you right now. You don't need God, you are God. You're good. Just look inside yourself. The biggest lie you've ever been told. Just look inside yourself. If you look deep enough inside yourself, you're gonna find some ugly, disturbing, gross stuff. 
That's why the light has to be inserted inside of us, right? The Holy Spirit shines a light on all those dark caverns in our heart, illuminates those things so we can move on to the next step, which is seeking forgiveness, seeking repentance, God repenting to God and understanding that we need a savior to deliver us. When we realize how depraved we are, we should seek to be saved from that depravity. I'm awful. I don't want to stay awful. God, you love me. You want to deliver me from porn addiction and hatred and racism. You want to deliver me from lust issues and greed and materialism. You don't want me to stay in that depravity. Guys, understanding that we're depraved is not a sad thing. It's wonderful because we know our salvation is not contingent on us. It's contingent on how good God is. And he wants to deliver us from those things. So what should we find ourselves doing? Once we realize how good he is and how bad we are, forgive me. Forgive me, I have done evil things. But repentance is not just asking for forgiveness. It's so important. Repentance is wanting to walk away from evil. It's not just saying, God, forgive me from being drunk. It's pushing the alcohol away. It's not just, God, forgive me for looking at this pornography. It's shutting the laptop, right? God, forgive me for cheating on my husband. No, no, no. It's taking different steps and not being in those environments where you can do those things. It's wanting to walk away from evil and closer to Jesus. And over time, do you know what happens? When we start to choose to, to, to genuinely repent, not just say, I'm sorry, but to walk away from it, do you know what starts to happen is we start to get restored, over time, it's not that hard to stay away from this stuff. Over time, sobriety is great. Over time, we start to see relationships are put back together. Over time, we start to see that, that we have joy and contentment in our hearts, and we start to change and we become better, right? All that's good so far, right? Everyone's like, yes, that's good so far. And then we get to the very end of this chapter, and this is where it gets complicated. To be a born-again believer of Jesus Christ we have to follow Jesus Christ. That sounds like the most ridiculous thing to say in a church. That should be so obvious. But right now in the United States, it doesn't seem like we understand that. To be a real Christian means we do what the Lord tells us to do. So when we are touched by God, when we are given clarity to see, the only proper response is to obey, to sacrifice, to submit, and to suffer. Well, Corey, it's hard. Man, so is being nailed to a hunk of wood for nine hours and bleeding to death. It's hard. But he did it for us. Again, do you know the Bible says that we should count it a joy? Man, if one of you were to stand in front and if someone was trying to, to, to sucker punch me and you jump in front and you take that blow for, you know, for me, right, so I don't get hit, I should, I should find it an honor to, to then push you to the side and defend you. You've suffered for me. I, I will suffer for you. How much more? The son of God, right? Who has suffered for us, beaten and spat upon and mocked and abused. Like the song said, died a criminal's death that he didn't deserve. And we go, oh, it's hard. We should count it all joy to suffer for Christ's name. He died for us. He saved us. It should be an honorable thing to suffer for him. 
But in order to do that, we have to deny ourselves. I don't know why I didn't make this like hot pink and flashing or something. We need to stop buying into the lie. Listen, because this is Americanism. We need to stop buying into the lie that your life, the, the only reason you're here is the pursuit of your personal happiness. Well, God just wants me to be happy. Find it in that book and I will eat the page that it's written on, right? It's not in there. Let me tell you why this book never says that God wants you to be happy. Can I tell you why? Because happiness is fleeting. Happiness is dependent on what you have or what you don't have. God doesn't want you to be happy. God wants something deeper. He wants you to be content, which means God wants you, hold on, God wants you to have something so deep inside you that if they took everything from you, if they robbed you of everything you have, that you still have joy because you have God. God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants something better for you. He wants contentment and joy. But we even put this phrase into our declarations, right? The pursuit of happiness. And we think that's why we're here on earth. We're not here to pursue happiness. We're here to pursue holiness and a relationship with him. And when we pursue Christ more than we pursue our own personal happiness, we find something better than happiness. We find contentment. We find peace. We find value. We find worth far better than happiness. Far better. And here's the, here's the biggest thing, guys. I think the reason why so many of us struggle, the reason why so many of us struggle with obedience and following Christ at all costs is I think we forget that there is something better on the other side. More than ever in 2020, I feel so out of place in this world right now. And I think we're supposed to feel that way. The Bible talks about that, right? That if you love the world, it doesn't mean people. It means that the, the culture, the systems of the world. If we love that, the Bible says that the love of the Father is not in us. It's a competing thing. And in 2020, the more I look at everything that's unfolding, more now than ever, I'm like, this isn't my home. This isn't, I'm not designed to be in this place forever. Doesn't mean that I don't love people. Doesn't mean that I don't like traveling. Doesn't mean that I don't recycle and take care and conserve and things like that, right? I believe we're called to take care of the planet and called to take care of each other and called to enjoy all the beautiful things around us. I, I, those are, that's fine. But the Bible also says we are, we are aliens in this, right? We are migrants. This is not our permanent destination. And if it were, I feel like I've been cheated, that's why at the end of the book, it says that Jesus is going to wipe away the old earth, the old heaven, and he's going to create something new. Guys, think about this. I've been thinking about this all week. When we get to heaven, we're all going to be made new too, okay? We're going to be, we're, we're going to be made into perfect people. What that means is this. Do you know that none of us will have a sin nature? What that means is this. <laughs> Imagine being around all of us in this room. Let's say we're just hanging out for eternity, right? Some of you are like, I don't want to hang out with Corey for eternity. But let's say we're all hanging out for eternity. But none of us had any sin in us, which means there's no jealousy. There's no talking bad about each other. There's always wanting the best for the person next to you. There's no strife. There's no arguing. There's no, we have perfect minds, perfect hearts, perfect intentions, perfect attitudes for eternity. Man, that's heaven. Throw in the fact that Jesus is going to be hanging out with us the whole time. 
Throw in the fact that there's going to be a whole new earth for us to explore, a whole new galaxy, that there's going to be a beautiful city that's going to come down to rest on that earth with streets of gold and pearly gates and the whole nine yards and this huge garden that's in the middle of it where the tree of life flows and we get to live for eternity. There's no need for a sun because Christ illuminates every single dark corner. And I think the problem with Christians is we've been in the water so long that we forget what land looks like, right? We've been in the middle of the mess so long that we forget that Jesus looks at every single one of us and says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. And if it weren't true, I wouldn't have told you. There's room for you. Do you know you're not home? And listen, if we start to understand that God has a promise for us, that's why Peter was willing to be crucified upside down. That's why Paul was willing to give his head to Caesar. That's why Stephen in Acts chapter 7 was on his knees as they were throwing rocks at his head. And he didn't curse the crowd. He didn't pick up rocks and chuck them back. Just like Jesus, he said, forgive them, God. They don't know what they're doing. Welcome me into heaven. And he smiled as he went into the afterlife. The reason why those men could run the race, the reason why they could suffer and die, the reason why they could be obedient until their own demise was they understood that the Lord had something waiting on the other side. Do you remember that? Do you know that? In your father's house, there are many rooms and there's one for you. But we have to be obedient now. We have to be faithful now. And there's a reward that we can't even fathom. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Hey, listen, I don't know what stage you're in. My hope is, is not necessarily that you're in a particular place in your walk, but that you're moving forward, okay? So if you are in the first stage, which is just you're looking, you don't, you don't have all the answers. You don't know what you think yet, what you believe, but you're looking. I love that stage because Jesus says, if you look, you're going to find. So I have a lot of hope for, for people like that. If you're in this room and you're looking, up on my right, your left, Carl is up here, Pastor Carl. He does all of our uh, small groups, okay? If you have any questions for Carl, he'd love to talk with you. If you're kind of like, man, you know, I feel something, but I have no idea where to go, what to do. I'm just looking. Come up here and talk to Carl. He'd love to talk with you. If you're in that stage, maybe you realize that you are depraved, you've made some bad mistakes, but, but maybe, I don't know, maybe you're feeling shame or guilt or whatever the case may be. There's men and women on both sides of the stage. They'd love to pray with you. They'd love to get to know you. If you want to give someone your cell phone or your email and get connected, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to, to, to build our family with you, if you will. And then the last thing is, is you have communion in your hands. Communion does so many things. The reason why we think this is so important in this church, first thing is communion reminds us to repent. Because the Bible says we cannot take communion until we repent or we take it under condemnation to ourselves. So we have to ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins before we take the body and blood of Jesus, okay? So this is a good time to kind of clean out the closet, if you will, right? To kind of get the junk out. It's also just a good time to remember how much God loves you. God loves you so much that he would give his only son
to die on an excruciating cross while you were at your worst. Jesus loves you. That's what that body and blood, that, that bread and that wine remind us of. The last thing it reminds me of is not only did Jesus die for us, he rose for us. And he gave us his Holy Spirit, which means you can be the son and daughter of the King of Kings that God wants you to be. Not because you're good, but because goodness lives in you. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you and you can rise up and be what he wants you to be. You can run the race. You can fight the fight. You can hold on. You can live like a noble follower of the King of Kings. You can do it. And you can do it until Christ splits the eastern sky and takes us home. You can do it. And when he takes us home, it's going to be a better home than this. You can do this. Father, Lord, we love you. God, I love this church. God, I love this church. Lord, keep your hand on us. God, humble us. Let us know that we're valued. I don't know why I need to say that today, God. Someone needs to hear that today, Lord, that they're not, their value and their worth is not based on what people think of them, God, but what you think of them. You know every hair on their head. You know everything about them. Before they were even knit together in their mother's womb, you knew us, God. And you love us. So Father, keep your hand on us, Lord. Strengthen us, guide us, Lord. Lord, keep, keep your hand on all my brothers and sisters, people watching at home until we meet again. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I love you guys so much. I hope you enjoy your weekend. Thank you.